This week on Geeksplained, we're kicking off Joketober with a look back at a Joker story that literally gave me nightmares when I was a kid. To celebrate the release of Joker in theaters this Friday, join us for a look back at Batman Beyond Return of the Joker. Welcome back to Geeksplain, the podcast for comics, film, TV, and more. You name it, we explain it. I'm your host, Eric Kazana, and it's officially Joketober! As we announced on last week's episode of the podcast, this month, the month of October, we are dedicating to the clown prince of crime himself, the Joker. Why, you ask? Well, he's got a little film coming out this Friday, as of this recording, starring Joaquin Phoenix, and I would say it's fair to say that the film is lighting the world on fire, uh, whether that be positively or negatively. As of this recording, I haven't seen Joker yet. Um, I will definitely be seeing it this weekend, but even before people have seen it, people are already making this one of the most divisive comic book films of all time. Uh, there's been talk about it, um, I guess convincing people to like commit violence on people who wrong them or some people are saying that um it's giving you know internet trolls the excuse they need to go out and harm people um i don't know if i would just agree with that um i think a lot of people are losing sight of the fact that joker is a villain and that he is supposed to be portrayed as a villain once again, I haven't seen the film yet, so I don't know exactly how they're going to be treating the character, but from my experience, Joker's always been a bad guy, so this is basically just giving a bad guy an origin story. And if you think you are, you know, relating to this awful person who does awful things to awful people, maybe you're an awful person too. I'm not going to judge you because you are listening to the podcast, and I like to give the benefit of the doubt to all of our listeners, but... Um, I would just say hold your judgment until you actually see the film. But all of that out of the way, all the disclaimers and um, political stuff aside, um, this is really exciting. I'm going to be talking about the Joker for the next five weeks. The entire month of October is going to be dedicated to uh, the Joker in all of his many media forms. We're talking comics, we're talking film, we're talking animation, video games. We're going to be talking about it all. And this week, we're going to be revisiting one of my favorite favorite Joker stories. It was one of the very first um, animated films that I ever purchased as a young uh, child, and I love this so much. I love this film. This is, of course, Return of the Joker. Uh, this is a Batman Beyond film. We're going to be talking all about it. We're going to be talking about some of the behind-the-scenes stuff. We're going to be talking about the film itself and just basically why I love it and why I think it's one of the best Joker stories ever told. Uh, also this week, we've got our weekly review concluding The Boys. This is the final episode of The Boys. Uh, we also have this 
week's Comics Countdown. But before we get into all of our Joker-filled content this week, let's jump into this week's news. All right, guys and gals, so we have some news for you this week. Lots of news, actually. Um, I was surprised at the amount of news that we got. So um, we have our four main categories, as usual, film, TV, comics, and miscellaneous. So we're going to kick off the miscellaneous news, uh, starting with a little bit of wrestling news. As you know, I am a wrestling fan, so if you are not a wrestling fan, it'll be over quick, because I just got one point here to say. Uh, This is a big week for wrestling fans when it comes to at least the North American wrestling fans, U.S. wrestling fans. Uh, We've got a lot going on this week, so the impending war between WWE I guess mostly NXT and AEW is kicking off this week. We had the uh, the season premiere for those of you who are listening. I am uh, doing air quotes here, and uh, we had the season premiere of. Monday Night Raw. Uh, SmackDown is officially moving to Fox this Friday, becoming Friday Night SmackDown. And uh, today, as of the the release of this, I'm recording this a little bit earlier in the week, but Wednesday, October 2nd, is the first head-to-head airing of WWE NXT as well as AEW Dynamite. Uh, NXT is going to be on the USA Network while AEW Dynamite is going to be on uh, Fox. No, TNT, sorry. Um, But really exciting. Uh, This is only going to be a good thing. Competition breeds uh, higher quality product from what I've experienced as a wrestling fan. When you have one company monopolizing the market, it's really hard to look for innovation and find, you know, satisfying product. So I'm really excited. Hopefully this uh, ratings war or whatever it's going to be actually pushes both AEW and NXT to be even better than they could have been alone. So that is my uh, wrestling note. We also have big news in the world of video games. The Last of Us finally has a release date for its part two. The Last of Us is one of the, I would say, one of the um, greatest video games of all time from word from a lot of people. I myself, and I'm going to get a lot of flack saying this right now, I've never played the first game, but I promise you, dear listener, I will be playing it before the second part comes out. I have had too many people recommend it to me, too many people tell me how good it is, so I will definitely be playing it before the release date, which has been officially announced as February 21st, 2020. So we are a mere... Uh, four months away from the release of Last of Us Part 2, so that was really exciting. Also, um, 
jumping over to TV news, big TV news this week, uh, starting off with some sad news, which is that the Ghost Rider show, which has been uh, tapped to be developed on Hulu, or released on Hulu at least, and would be uh, starring Gabriel Luna, who would be reprising his role as uh, Robbie Reyes from the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. show, has officially been scrapped. Uh, sources close to the project say that Marvel basically pulled the plug on it. Uh, we don't know if this is because Kevin Feige has a bigger plan for Ghost Rider. I would assume so. Uh, maybe the show will find its way onto Disney Plus, or maybe we'll see him introduced into Phase 4 or Phase 5. We don't know. Um, I think the most likely place, if they were going to allude to him at least, would be, uh, in Phase 4 at least, would be Doctor Strange the Multiverse of Madness, because there's all of that dark... Uh, occultist stuff that we could touch on with both Doctor Strange and uh, Scarlet Witch being in the mix. And of course, there's the whole Midnight Suns angle, which Doctor Strange has uh, made himself part of during the last couple of years in the comics, at least. So sad that we're not getting that show, but hopefully it means bigger things for the character. Uh, the rest of this is just going to be me ranting about Crisis on Infinite Earths. Uh, <laughs> Crisis on Infinite Earths is the uh, incoming big crossover for DC TV uh, coming out of all of the DCCW shows. It is the huge crossover across all of the uh, CW shows, that being um, Supergirl, Flash, Green Arrow, Batwoman, Legends of Tomorrow, and possibly Black Lightning. We don't have official confirmation that he's going to be in it. But I would say it's a pretty safe bet, especially with some of the stuff that they've been pulling, bringing people back. Um, first off, first news that we got, um, I don't. It's it's the smallest of the news, I would say. So I'm gonna talk about it here. Um, we have a another returning alumni from uh, DC TV's past. And that is that we are getting the return of Huntress from the Birds of Prey TV series. For those of you who don't know, there was a Birds of Prey show prior to the uh, incoming movie that's uh, joining the DC Extended Universe, or however they want to call it now, uh, next year. This show was on the WB way back before it was the CW and featured uh, uh, a paralyzed Barbara Gordon who was Oracle. It had Huntress. It was as bare bones as you could get because it came out in uh, 2002. So this was the time when we were still getting stuff like Ben Affleck's Daredevil, the uh, black leather phase for the X-Men films. And this was probably the most, I would say, the most accurate uh, comic adaptation when it came to just basic cable television uh, at the time. But the lead of that show was Huntress, and she was played by Ashley Scott. Um, I'm not super familiar with anything Ashley Scott did after that. Um, but she, I remember enjoying the show for what it was. Uh, we did, this was also uh, the first 
I think it was the first like on-screen uh, appearance of like live action of Dinah Lance, who in this show was known as Dinah Redmond. Whatever. Um, but this was in a world where this was like a post-killing joke world where Barbara Gordon was paralyzed. And uh, Ashley Scott played the Huntress, but not the Helena Bertinelli version that all of us are mostly familiar with. But instead the Helena Kyle version, the Earth 2 version, if you will, the daughter of Batman and Catwoman. Um, this version was really weird. They had her have like cat-like uh, metahuman abilities. It's it's strange. It wasn't very good, but I'm still excited because it's just it's just going to show you that Crisis on Infinite Earths is touching on every single bit of DC TV continuity and this whole idea of the multiverses and of course all Infinite Earths is in the title. So bringing all these characters back is really, really cool. And we got to see some of the really, really cool crossover stuff with some set photos. Um, there was plenty this past week because they are in full swing when it comes to production right now. They are filming the full uh, crossover as we speak. And as such, we got some great set photos first off the one that i want to talk about is lois and clark from smallville uh tom welling and erica durance durance i mispronounced your name and i apologize um we saw a shot of them at the old school smallville farm which gave me such nostalgia uh clark isn't in any kind of super suit and i after seeing a second um set photo where it showed Tom Willings Clark alongside the Clark and Lois from the CW version. I'm assuming that we're just getting one like quick scene where they try to like recruit Tom Willings Superman and he's just like, nah, man, I'm retired. So I don't know. I don't think he's going to have a very big role in it, but I'm just really excited to see him as part of this. So we did get that uh, shot as well. We also got a shot of Erica Durance, Durance, damn it. Um, getting ready to go on to the Batwoman chapter of the crossover. So that's really exciting. And then the big one, the big one this week that I was, and still am, head over heels for, is we all know at this point, leading into this week, that Brandon Routh was going to be reprising his role as Superman, except he, this time he would be playing the Kingdom Come iteration of Superman. I love Kingdom Come. I love that book. It is so, so good. It is one of my favorite comics. And we got Brandon Routh's... Ah, his Superman. We got, we got official, like... Um, photos of him in his Superman costume. We had three that were released. Uh, first with the classic, you know, fists on the hip pose. The second with uh, his hands kind of clasped in front of him, similar to the uh, cover of the old uh, JSA comic where Kingdom Come Superman comes into the uh, JSA and joins them for a little while. Quick plug for our episode last week, episode 75, a full uh, breakdown of the Justice Society of America. And then we finally got a full body shot with 
his cape and all of its glory. I love this. Brandon Routh looks so good, and it's it's classic Superman. He's got like the weird, you know, black belt with the gold belt buckle. He's got the trunks. He's got the cape tucked into the suit. It looks incredible. Uh, Brandon Routh has his little Superman uh, twirl or whatever it's called, uh, the little spit curl. I love this. He looks fantastic. He looks like Superman. He looks like Superman. And I would kill, absolutely kill, for a Superman show, a Superman film, whatever, with this Superman. I even said, I posted this on Twitter, and I was like, five seasons in a movie. This is what I need. I need this Superman just living his life, doing his super heroics. We know that Brandon Routh's going to kill it. And I am so, 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 so excited for this. And then they followed it up. This is why I wait to record news until right before I'm going to drop the episode. They dropped another, another picture of Ralph's Superman right next to Hoechlin's Superman. Tyler Hoechlin, who has been playing Superman on the Supergirl TV show. And I I just about died, folks. I died. And they're in the... It shows both of them in their super suits. Uh, the Daily Planet logo is behind them, so they're obviously at the Daily Planet. I'm, I'm going to explode during this crossover. Over the course of this, you know, however many episodes this crossover is, I'm just going to die. I think, with how much Superman goodness we're going to be getting in this crossover. I can't wait. I've been I've been absolutely head over heels for Tyler Hoechlin's Superman. I think his version of Superman that's been showing up on uh, Supergirl is probably the best, I think, um, of the live-action Superman in my opinion, that's just my opinion, but I am really excited to see what they do together now that we know that they're crossing over. I would love all three of the Superman, we're talking Tom Welling, Brandon Routh, and Tyler Hoechlin, all standing together in their super suits about to fight the Anti-Monitor. That's all I want. That's all I want. But I am just over the moon about this. So Crisis is incoming. I cannot wait to see what they do with this. It is, it's gonna be great. It's gonna be fantastic. Uh, we also got some trailers for Supergirl Flash and Green Arrow as well as Black Lightning uh, promoting their upcoming seasons. Lots of good stuff coming up. I'm really, really, really excited for this season. Probably more excited than I've been for any season, any fall season of the CW Arrow shows, Arrowverse. So I'm really excited about this. And then finally, jumping into film news. Big, big news when it comes to film this week. Uh, we're going to start off with Birds of Prey. We talked about Birds of Prey a little bit in, uh, the, in the TV news. I'm going to talk about it here. Birds of Prey got its first official trailer um, in... I guess in advance of the release of Joker and as well as New York Comic Con. It looks good. It looks good. Um, I watched it. I I liked it. It's um, it's not a Birds of Prey trailer. I'm just I'm gonna be honest. I'm gonna be honest because you're you're listening to this for my honest opinion. I'm gonna be honest about it. I was a little let down by the actual trailer. I know that the film is centered on Harley Quinn. She's the main selling point. People know who she is. They may not be as familiar with Black Mask or 
Black Canary or Huntress, but it's a Birds of Prey film. You're calling this Birds of Prey, yet Dinah and Helena barely have any screen time in this trailer. It's just, it's all Harley Quinn. It's all talking about Harley Quinn. And I know the film's going to be like that. And I'm sure that it's, we've only gotten a bit piece of it. And that's what trailers are about. And I would much rather go into the film and be pleasantly surprised at the amount of character work and screen time that Black Canary and Huntress get in this. But if you're going to call this Birds of Prey, make a trailer establishing the Birds of Prey. Don't make this a Harley Quinn trailer if you are going to just call the film Birds of Prey. If you want it to be Harley Quinn and her sidekicks, fine. Make that the title of the film, market it that way. But don't call it Birds of Prey, but market it as a Harley Quinn solo film. <sighs> I got a little bit more fired up about that than I should have, but that's just, that's how I feel. Um, overall, visuals I think look great. The cinematography looks really good. It looks like a really distinct style. Uh, the costume design looks fantastic. I liked what I saw of Huntress, Black Canary, and Black Mask, and we got a little bit of Victor Zaz in there too. I'm hoping we actually get to see him make some of the uh, cuts on him when he kills people because that's his whole trademark, and from what we've seen of him in footage, he doesn't have very many of those, so he's either very early on in his career or he hasn't adopted that um, practice yet. But we'll see. We'll see. I hope that if we do, and we will, get a second trailer that it puts more focus on the other characters. If they want to do it like first trailer's Harley Quinn, second trailer's Huntress, third trailer's Black Canary, or vice versa, I'm fine with that. In If that's what the plan is, then I will absolutely take back what I said about the marketing here. But if this is an indication of what all of the marketing is going to be. And with the posters that were released for New York Comic Con, that kind of seems the case. Um, I'm not I'm not excited about it. I'm not really excited about it. So anyway, um, jumping into other news, this time on the other side of the street, uh, Kevin Feige has been tapped to produce a Star Wars film. So this is really exciting for those of us who are huge fans of Kevin Feige and his work in the MCU. I'm really excited about it. Um, I think it is safe to say that Star Wars has been troubled when it comes to its fandom, its fan base, uh, the film production, all of it has been not so great. Um, very divisive, more so than I think it should be. But I think that bringing someone in who has long-term visions for franchises like Kevin Feige does will do nothing but positive, uh, but bring a positive impact to this franchise. Now, whether it's just a one-off film or if it's going to, you know, branch out into other things for Star Wars, we don't know yet. But this is exciting news, which feeds into our next news, which is Spider-Man. You thought we were done talking about him, but Spider-Man is officially back in the MCU. Uh, Sony and Disney have reached a deal for at least two more films, one being uh, Spider-Man 3 and another being an MCU film, whether that's in a cameo or another Avengers film. He will definitely appear in those films for sure. Uh, Sony will retain the rights to the character, but Disney will be getting 25% uh, profit off of the box office as well as retaining the merchandising rights. 
I... I... Okay, so I'm going to put a disclaimer before I get into this. I don't want these new segments to become things where I just, like, complain about stuff that I should be excited about. But um, I just... I I don't care. Um, I'm, I'm happy. I'm, I'm excited that we get to at least finish up the trilogy that Tom Holland and uh, John Watts started. I'm excited that he gets to be in an Avengers film one more time, uh, whether this is him getting killed off in that Avengers film to make way for Miles Morales solely in the uh, Sony camp remains to be seen. But um, I, I think it's weird. Uh, apparently, rumor is that one of the when we were covering this we said that one of the reasons that sony cited for pulling out of the deal was that kevin feige was quote unquote too busy to help them and yet apparently according to you know rumor and hearsay uh the announcement that kevin feige was going to be helping out star wars was the straw that broke the camel's back to be like okay well i guess he's not too busy if he's you know trying to help helm another franchise so Exciting for everyone who's a fan of that version of the character, myself included. But I'm, I, I think I just got burned out with all of the really negative on both sides um, vitriol that was being spewed by a lot of people. Whether it's you know the MCU stands or like the uh, people who are devout Raimi fans who were like you know screw the MCU version of Peter, we might get a Spider-Man 4 with Toby, or we might get a recast altogether. Um, there was just a lot of hate being thrown around, and it just got exhausting. I love Spider-Man as a character, but I got really exhausted listening and hearing Spider-Man negativity every single day for the past few weeks. So if this ends up being a great thing for both companies, great. Um, I know the rumor was when the deal first fell through that Disney wanted 50%, not 25%. So Sony is at least retaining, you know, majority. But I, I don't know. I don't know. We did get an official release date for Spider-Man 3 as well. And that is going to be, I believe, uh, July 10th. No, July 16th. 2021 is the uh is the release date for tom holland's final uh film in this trilogy so i think it's exciting because that means that it's going to be going head-to-head -head with the robert pattinson batman and it's been a long time since we've had a batman spider-man battle so that should be good. Um, I hope they have a good direction for him. I hope this film does well. I hope that we're able to figure something out. And I just hope that we're able to positively talk about Spider-Man again. Because, again, I was, just ex I was just completely exhausted by all of the super negative uh, vibes coming from both sides. Both people wanting him to stay in the MCU and people wanting him to leave the MCU. So I'm hoping that we can at least agree that Tom deserves another shot, at least one more film uh, solo to wrap up the cliffhanger of Far From Home, as well as one more MCU outing before they decide what to do with him next. So that that's my thoughts on it. And that is going to do it for this week's news. Uh, lots of stuff 
this week. Um, I'm sure as we get into it, into the fall and everything, uh, the news is just going to keep coming. So I will be looking forward to reporting on all of that for you folks at home. But for now, let's jump into the main course, the entree, if you will, of this week, which is looking back at one of my favorite Joker stories of all time, that being Batman Beyond, Return of the Joker. No, what the heck, I'll laugh anyway. <laughs> That, ladies and gentlemen, is how you do a theme for the Joker. That music, of course, was the Joker theme composed by Shirley Walker for the animated series of Batman. Um, I love, I love that theme. It's so quintessentially Joker because it can be kind of menacing with the horns and everything, but at its core, it's very uh, fun and kind of whimsical. So this is your main event of the evening. This is the first installment of Joketober. And for the first week, we're going to be taking a look at the Joker in animation. And one of my favorite animated Joker stories, that being Batman Beyond Return of the Joker. Batman Beyond Return of the Joker was originally released in its edited form on December 12th of 2000, and the uncut and uncensored version was released two years later on April 23rd, 2002. Um, this is one of my favorite Batman stories. I keep saying that, but it, it honestly is. Um, Batman and the Joker is an iconic clash of ideals, a clash of styles and tones and vibes and just like Heath Ledger says in The Dark Knight they are going to be doing this forever but this specific story is a twist on that because it presents the original Joker voiced incredibly by Mark Hamill going up against the newer Batman not Bruce Wayne anymore because he's an old man he's retired he's going up against Terry McGinnis Batman Beyond so to give you a little backstory a little bit of uh, context for this film Batman Beyond was an animated series in the late 90s to early 2000s and uh, it's basically in a nutshell, it's Spider-Man if he was Batman. And that sounds weird, but it's like this, the concept for Batman Beyond, or Batman of the Future, as it was known in international markets, was that this is 30 some odd years uh, ahead in time from wherever now is, according to Bruce Tim, And Bruce Wayne has gotten old. The opening of the pilot for Batman Beyond features probably like a late 40s, early 50s Batman who is finding, his, finding it really difficult to continue to be Batman and fight crime on the same level that he was. He's fashioned himself and like a new uh, technologically advanced super bat suit that allows him to have jet boots and fly and turn invisible and stuff. But his, uh, his age is catching up with him. And after he is forced to 
use a gun to intimidate a criminal into uh, defeating him, uh, he realizes that his time has passed and he hangs up the cowl. And it's years later, many years later, that a young man named Terry McGinnis stumbles into the Batcave in a futuristic Gotham City after being chased by the Joker's gang, a gang inspired, of course, by the Joker himself. And after a really uh, tumultuous beginnings, uh, Terry McGinnis and Bruce Wayne enter into a partnership where Bruce Wayne is essentially the man in the chair and Terry is running around as the new and improved Batman. So this was one of my favorite shows growing up. I loved Batman the Animated Series. It is a core piece of my childhood, but I never was able to see myself in Bruce Wayne. I was never able to see myself in Batman specifically. But with Batman Beyond, it was different. With Terry McGinnis, you could see yourself as that kid. You could see yourself as this normal guy, has a bit of an attitude, he has a girl that he loves, he has to deal with normal high school antics, and he gets to be part of this legacy. I was a huge Dick Grayson fan, uh, the version in the animated series who eventually became Nightwing, one of my favorite characters in the version that I always look back on as my definitive version, this is almost the evolution of that role. This is him taking center stage as Terry McGinnis. And Terry McGinnis was a fun character. This was a Batman who quipped. This was a Batman who got excited about being Batman, and he had to deal with juggling his life of normal high school stuff with extracurriculars and then also being Batman. And that's the classic Spider-Man uh, dilemma. That's the classic Spider-Man problem. And it also helps that this character was essentially created to mimic... Uh, Spider-Man 2099 with the futurist aspect, the suit, everything. This character is a direct influence or was directly influenced by Spider-Man 2099. And I love that. I think it's hilarious. But Batman Beyond was one of those shows that I always really adored. And I loved that in certain aspects, they created a whole new rogues gallery for him. But in other aspects, they started to touch on the stuff that made Batman the Animated Series so good. Those characters, seeing where they were all these years later, because this was an actual sequel to the show. This wasn't just like a, oh, you know, this is a different continuity, this is a different time. This is literally the future of the DC Animated Universe, which at this point now includes uh, Batman the Animated Series, Superman the Animated Series, the Batman and Superman or the new Batman Superman Adventures, Justice League, Justice League Unlimited, Justice League vs. the Fatal Five. All of that stuff is now in continuity with this show. And this showed in Justice League Unlimited when one of the episodes, I think it was the I think it was the season finale to season three, which was technically Justice League Unlimited season one, uh, entitled Epilogue, which was not just an epilogue to Justice League, just the whole series, bringing back characters like Amanda Waller and all that stuff, but also an epilogue to Batman Beyond, an epilogue to everything in the DCAU. So I loved it. I thought it was an incredible show. And what I loved about 
all the characters that they brought back were how they would twist some of them. Mr. Freeze was now, you know, building off of this whole disembodied head deal where he was brought even further into the future. Bane, his influence and his venom being used as, you know, this drug, this performance-enhancing drug. I thought all of this stuff was really good, but I was really surprised that we never got a mention or an explanation for what happened to the Joker. He is Batman's, I would say, most iconic enemy, and it always felt weird to me. Like, we had the Jokers with a Z because it's radical and edgy, but they were more influenced by his aesthetic than really being extensions of him. So we never knew what happened to him, why he was absent in the show, because he always kind of seemed like a force of nature that would essentially outlive everybody. And he was noticeably absent. Well, this film, Batman Beyond Return of the Joker, gives us those answers, lets us know what happened to the original Joker, and tries to explain and show what would happen if you transplanted that character and put him into the future and up against this new, uh, less experienced Batman. Because when this came out, I want to say this was between seasons two and seasons three of Batman Beyond. So Terry is really in like year two of being Batman. He's not prepared for everything that the Joker has in store for him. But what I think is just as interesting as the film itself is the production history behind it. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. So originally, Batman Beyond the Return of the Joker wasn't even supposed to happen. This wasn't even a movie that was in development. Originally, they were uh, WB and DC Comics were working on uh, the Batman the Animated Series films. So we had Batman Mask of the Phantasm. Following that up was Batman Sub-Zero. That was also super good. I would say Mask of the Phantasm is better, but um, excellent films, one and all. And they wanted to make a third to kind of complete the trifecta, make it a trilogy. And this movie was supposed to be called Batman Arkham. Boyd Kirkland would be directing this film as he did with previous uh, Batman properties. And the film was supposed to essentially be what Batman Arkham Asylum later became. So Batman and Robin facing off against a bunch of their rogues gallery within Arkham Asylum after they have overrun it. Full-length feature film, um, as well as Batman falling in love with a new, or having a new love interest and dealing with this entire rogues gallery at once with Robin by his side. That project fell through it was canceled and instead they decided to piggyback off of the success of batman beyond and make a whole film dedicated to him so in i think in retrospect this is probably a uh, a blessing in disguise because we got this film instead so Lots of stuff that's really interesting about this. Um, notably, one of the main characters of the Batman Beyond uh, cartoon, Max, who was Terry's best friend and kind of his, uh, his tech girl, uh, completely gone, completely absent in this film. She doesn't show up once, uh, which I thought was odd. But the big change for a lot of people, and at the time what I thought was 
the most jarring and most incredible was the design of the Joker. And the design of the Joker has gone through several iterations just in the DCAU. We had the, I would say, the iconic look from the original Batman the Animated Series, the Mickey Mouse-like look from the new Batman Adventures, and then we got this. This was kind of like a mixture taking all the best bits from both of those designs and melding them into this incredible, incredible design. Uh, this design was so good for the character, in fact, that they later used this design for his appearances in the Justice League and Justice League Unlimited cartoons. So according to the DVD commentary, the this new Joker design, which gave him back his regular eyes, albeit with red pupils, gave him back lips again, uh, was based on an illustration of Hannibal Lecter, which I think is incredible. I love that. So, um, so good. The design is, I think, one of the creepier interpretations of the Joker. It's chilling to look at. You know exactly what I'm talking about. If you've watched this, if you've watched his appearances in Justice League, um, it's fantastic. So this film was set to originally um, debut once again in December of 2000, but production ran into some difficulties because of this backlash against violence in uh, films and video games aimed at children due to the events of the Columbine High School Massacre, which happened on April 20th, 1999. So... Um, I won't, I'm not going to get too much into it, but Columbine, uh, they're two very troubled kids, uh, made the choice to shoot up a school. It was horrible. It was awful. It was tragic. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of the blame for this fell on the shoulders of violent video games and uh, films and stuff like that. So this was right smack dab in the middle of development for this film. And so they had to do some heavy re-editing and heavy censorship. So there was a lot of stuff that went into it. They basically had to scramble between April and December to not just uh, redraw, reanimate, and uh, re-record or record new lines for these scenes, but they also had to do that in the span of what, like six months. So. This version uh, has many, many stuff changed. I have a list here of stuff that they changed, so I'm just going to go through it real quick. Uh, references to death and killing were removed from character dialogue, just completely. So it was a lot of implication. It was a lot of, you know, my biggest thing was um, back in the old days, in the original dub of Dragon Ball Z, no one died. They were cast to the shadow dimension, or the other dimension is what it was called. They were sent to the other dimension. And I just think that's hilarious, like, looking back on it. But all death and killing were removed from character dialogue. Um, this includes, like, Im like implied stuff about that, too. Like, at one point, uh, Commissioner Barbara Gordon, who is uh, taking on her father's role in Batman Beyond, uh, she says, we buried the Joker deep beneath Arkham Asylum. It was, that line was just removed. And just because it references being dead, burial of the dead, all that stuff. Uh, the opening fight sequence was trimmed, cutting uh, a couple different kicks and punches. Uh, also, the 
the super cool 360 degree fight sequence where uh, Batman is fighting off the Joker's gang in one, you know, rotating take. Uh, white flashes were also added to the action sequences whenever someone made contact with like a punch. Uh, Bruce Wayne throwing a batarang at the very beginning and the batarang cutting off the head of a dummy. Uh, Two-Face was also removed. Um, I think one of the biggest changes was in the scene that re-debuts the Joker, where all the Jokers are thinking about leaving him and he kills Bonk, who is kind of the main voice of dissent here. Uh, instead of him having his trademark bang uh, flag gun that he presses the trigger the second time and the flag shoots out and impales someone. Instead, he was just dosed with Joker Venom that essentially knocks him out, I guess. Um, and his death was kind of just implied off screen. Uh, all blood was removed in the edited version as well. And I think the biggest change in the film was the completely reshot and redone death of the joker we're going to talk about the original uncut version because that's the one that i watched uh for this to kind of refresh my mind for it but in the edited version which the was the version that i first saw um instead of the joker being killed by tim drake uh shooting him with the his trademark uh bang flag gun he you know Tim Drake throws the gun aside, tackles the Joker, uh, pushes him towards the lab where uh, Joker was doing experiments on him. He gets tangled up in wires, and the rain from the outside has the entire floor like covered in water. He slips on the water, pulls a lever, and is killed by uh, electric shock. So that's the biggest change i think there's also like little changes like there's one point in the uncut version where while they're still looking for tim batgirl talks to two hookers and they change it to a uh to just a normal like couple um they also i think this is hilarious they added seat belts to every character in vehicles i guess in the future you didn't need seat belts for whatever reason because they were never present in the show or in the original version of the film but the seatbelts were added in this film as kind of, I guess, to say, be safe when driving. Um, there's also just a lot of, like, redone lines, uh, just different versions. So, like, when Joker's giving his monologue to Batman, when he initially says, like, I'll begin with how I peeled back the layers of the boy's mind changed it to i'll begin with how i affected young robin's makeover so just a lot of different like um just kind of trying to get it down to a more i would i'm again putting air quotes uh family friendly version but i while i think the whole um electroshock death is still super dark I still think that the original death from the uncut version is the superior version, and that version of the film is better. So, all of that out of the way, speaking of this uncut version, we're going to be talking about the film itself. Uh, full spoilers, as I'm sure you can already tell with me talking about specific scenes that were edited. If you have not watched this film, go and check it out on the DC Universe streaming service and app. They're not a sponsor for us, but they totally could be a sponsor. And 
you should just check this out because it's an incredible Joker story. Uh, gets you right in the mood to watch Joker uh, this Friday as of this recording. And let's dive into it. Let's just talk about it. Uh, the big thing here that I love is Bruce Wayne and Terry McGinnis. This film lives and dies by their relationship, by those characters, because they are the two people in this film who are affected by Joker the most. Uh, there is absolutely a case to be made for Tim Drake, but we will be getting to him a little bit later. Bruce and Terry here really, uh, you see a lot develop here. A lot develops between Bruce and Terry. Uh, we start off the film with them being in their normal mentor-mentee role, but as soon as the Joker shows up again, Bruce does what Bruce always does. He shuts out his allies and tries to uh, figure out solutions on his own. Unfortunately, that opens the door for the Joker, who does know his true identity, um, going after Bruce and incapacitating him, forcing Terry to go it alone against the most dangerous foe that Batman ever faced. Uh, I love this. I love this aspect of it. There's even a scene when, um, right after uh, Joker first shows up, where Terry keeps trying to ask. He keeps trying to figure out, you know, what's with this guy? You never mentioned him. Um, he's the guy you never talk about. Why do you never talk about him? And Bruce just won't tell him. He just keeps telling him to drop it, drop it, drop it. And then when, at a certain point, Bruce realizes that Terry very possibly could meet the same fate as Tim did, uh, he wants Terry to give up being Batman. He brings up the fact that Terry brought to justice the people behind the murder of his father. And... He says, you know, you've done your job. You brought your father's killers to justice. There's nothing holding you to this anymore, and it was selfish of me to force you to do this. And of course, Terry's like, you didn't force me. Like, I want to be Batman. This is my life now. And you see in a very, you know, Peter Parker, Spider-Man kind of way uh, how this affects him. There's a great scene after the uh, opening action sequence where he fights off the Joker's gang. He is, you know, getting back into street clothes, and Bruce is like, you know, a good night's sleep would do you some good. And Terry's like, well, the night's young. I'm going to go out to a club. And you see him with his girlfriend Dana at the club, and he is falling asleep. And as someone who has done that before, who has been so exhausted from everything going on in my life, that I went out to a bar with friends and I fell asleep there, um, I felt that so hard. I thought it was funny back when I first saw it as uh, as a younger man, but as an adult now, it just I I find it even funnier. But you see that Terry is still cocky. He's still brash. He's still young in his career of Batman, and his view on this is: you defeated this guy so many times before. We with both of us together, we can beat him. However, Bruce knows the darkness that hides behind Joker's laughter. He knows how far Joker will go to hurt him, and he doesn't want Terry to go through that. So he tells Terry to give him back the suit. Terry does, and that splits them for a time. Uh, Bruce deals with a lot. We see how much the events of Joker's death, as well as Tim's conversion, really affected him. We also see the moment where he gets crippled, or at least uh, is forced to use a cane when the Joker like stabs him in the leg, uh, which I think is fantastic. It's a great little 
minor detail that is, I think, so important in these kind of uh, these kind of stories. So Bruce deals with a lot, and he just like classic every single iteration that we've ever seen from Bruce Wayne, he doesn't know how to ask for help, and he doesn't know how to uh, repair relationships after he's already burned the bridge. Uh, we find out that after the events of Joker's death, after Tim was, for the most part, uh, cured and brought back, uh, Bruce wouldn't let him be Robin again. He, he forced him to quit. And it's sad, because watching the new Batman adventures, uh, watching Bruce take Tim into, into the fold and really uh, shape him into a, crime, into a capable crime fighter, you see how much that hurt Bruce to push everyone away again. We never get the appearance of Nightwing or even really any kind of specific mention of Dick Grayson in the Batman Beyond cartoon. We get a great sequence when uh, I think it's Terry's suit gets possessed by a virus and he uses the utility belt from uh, Batman's old suit and the Nightwing mask to combat it, which I think is amazing. But we never got the official, like, why they don't talk anymore and barbara even brings it up during this film that bruce pushed away everybody after this for fear of what happened to tim happening to them and we see how he got so isolated we see how he went from having a, a full support system into being this broken and um, alone man that we see at the very beginning of the show and we also see how much that affects him to have someone that he cares about and trusts and again with terry he immediately goes back to his old ways of pushing terry away and it's only by the two of them coming together after terry learns the truth about what happened that bruce is able to begin to heal um, he's finally able to visit tim after they haven't spoken for probably decades and I love that this, for me at least, gives a great epilogue and a great coda on the story of Bruce Wayne in the uh, DC animated universe. When it comes to Terry, he really steps it up in this film. Uh, we, I remember back in the very first, the pilot of Batman Beyond, when he's fighting the guy who killed his father. And the guy says something along the lines of it. You know, you're pretty strong for some guy who, you know, pretending to be Batman. And there's that iconic moment where Terry finally shouts at him, I am Batman! But as someone who knows everything that happens, as someone who watched all the shows, as someone who put the time in, watched the character development happen, I would argue that he doesn't really become Batman until this film. Terry's always kind of struggled with that idea of am I a hero because I'm wearing the suit or am I a hero because of who I am? And they really push that onto him again in this film. Uh, the Joker constantly calls him Batfake, uh, criticizes him when he first shows up. Uh, Joker's just like, nah, ears are too long and I missed the cape. So he's been struggling with this since the moment that he put the costume on but bruce finally gives him this validation uh in my view essentially pass officially passing the torch to him in this film in the final scene that they have together where bruce says um you once i've been thinking about something you once told me and you were wrong 
being Batman doesn't make you worthwhile. It's the other way around. Never tell yourself anything different. And that's the moment, that's the moment where we finally get the passing of the torch, where Bruce is finally able to let go and trust the legacy of Batman with Terry McGinnis. And the next scene that we see him immediately following this conversation, Terry is seen, you know, standing above Gotham, very, I I know I keep making this comparison, but very uh, Sam, Raimi, Sam Raimi Spider-Man-like, standing over the city, he's got his mask in his hand, he puts the mask on, and we see him flying off into the distance as Batman, not as someone who is, you know, faking at being Batman, not someone who is trying to fill the boots of the first Cape Crusader. He is officially his own man. He's officially his own Batman. And I love that. Terry has been one of my favorite characters. Um, he definitely doesn't get enough love, just as it is. And he really comes into his own as a crime fighter in this film. He is able to uh, defeat the Joker by his own uh, skill and wit and intuition. Uh, Bruce isn't able to help him at all, which he kind of relied on for most of his early adventures, including some of the stuff that happens in this film. And him finally trusting himself to take on the biggest bad that Bruce ever tangoed with really says a lot about his character. Uh, Joker even says, you know, you're out of your league. I, you know, I know everything that Batman and Ro that the real Batman and Robin knew at their peak. And Terry maintains that, yeah, maybe, but you don't know me. And so when he, you know, hits Joker with a low blow, at one point Joker's just like, the real Batman would never. And then um, to distract him, to anger him, he turns Joker's own tactics on his head, where in the flashback sequence, Joker is taunting Batman in, in Arkham Asylum in the shadows. Um, Terry mirrors that, and this is one of the greatest parallels, I think, in the film. Uh, Terry turns that on its head, and he's the one taunting Joker from the from the uh, from the shadows, running around the rafters, making fun of him, calling him a poor example of a clown, and you know, saying he's essentially had such a hard on for Batman because he can never get him to laugh. And so him, you know, doing his quipping and poking and prodding at Joker throws him off because he's not used to this. He doesn't know how to deal with a Batman who gives just as much as he can take. And I love that Batman is redefined in this film by what Terry is able to grow into over the course of however long this film is. It's like an it's like an hour and a half, I think. But those two characters really carry this film. They are the heart and soul of this film, and you get to see through both of their eyes just how much times have changed. We've seen over the course of just this film, Barbara go from Batgirl to commissioner of the GCPD. Uh, we get to see the impact of Tim Drake retiring and becoming, you know, a radar technician like Matt. And we really get to see how 
much the role, the mantle, the legacy of Batman has changed through this film. And we also get a clear look and one of my favorite looks at the quote-unquote the old days. And so we're going to be talking about now that scene. We're going to be talking about the night that Joker died. Um, It's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. If you just had this cut out, this piece as just a standalone um, mini short movie which acts as like an epilogue to the new Batman adventures. This works. Everything about it works. Um, from Tim going around on his own feeling that he's you know a good enough superhero at this point to be patrolling without Batman, being captured by Harley and Joker, and then Batman and Batgirl having to search for him for weeks he was gone. He was in the Joker's clutches for weeks while Batman and Batgirl ran down every single lead that they could in Gotham City to find out where he is. And then they finally get the invitation to come to Arkham Asylum. We see that Arkham at this point had been, uh, everyone had been relocated to a new facility. This building, some kind of cataclysmic event happened here that caused the degradation of the entire uh, foundation of the building. So there's, you know, bottomed out floors, the roof's broken open. Um, This could be due to the events of the, uh, I think it was the near apocalypse of 09. Uh, It could be the kind of the spirits of that original Batman Arkham animated movie living on into this where the Arkham Asi- where the asylum essentially had been uh, destroyed. But either way, it is haunting. They drive up and there's no one there. It's just empty halls and you hear this really terrifyingly unsettling um, humming, this singing from Harley Quinn singing, singing uh, Mockingbird. You know, Mom's gonna buy you a Mockingbird. It is, ugh, just sends a shiver up your spine. And when Batman arrives into the main atrium of Arkham Asylum, he finds that it's been retrofitted to be like an I Love Lucy set where Joker and Harley are living out their best uh, 50s fantasy where they're talking about, you know, they didn't want to go through childbirth, so they decided to adopt. And you find out what happened to Tim Drake. And it is legitimately creepy it is legitimately unsettling i remember having nightmares when i was a kid when i first saw this just from the opening shot of them pulling the curtain back and you seeing tim strapped to the gurney and you just see the eyes and the smile um i will be candid with you folks when i was a kid i watched uh courage the cowardly dog i liked more offbeat shows like that but there was a character in the in the show who was the um brother of uh Eustace no of um Muriel who's the brother of Muriel um his name was Freaky Fred and I remember after I watched that episode where Freaky Fred debuted he is this terrifyingly lanky man with this wiry blonde uh 
haircut and this smile that was bigger than his face. I was so unsettled by that episode, I stopped watching the show. And when this shot came up in the film with Tim, half of his face cast in shadow, but you just see the eyes and the grin, I was scared out of my mind. I was legitimately frightened. And I had nightmares about that for weeks after watching it. Uh, You find out that Tim has been experimented on and turned into this just un you know unable to form sentences like uh mini joker and he has this creepy laugh that's all he can communicate through is this super creepy laugh he can't even speak and he is just legitimately terrifying he's really honest to god terrifying and batman is of course sent into a rage he goes after the joker who leads him further into the asylum while batgirl tangos with uh, Harley Quinn and has one of the best lines in the film where she goes, "Sweetie, get Mama's bazooka." I I love it. It's it's Harley Quinn. It's classic Harley Quinn. Uh, we do end up seeing what we think at the moment is the fate of Harley Quinn, where she seemingly falls to her death in the depths of uh, Arkham Asylum. We later see that that's not the case, however, and that the DDs, who are part of the Joker's gang for this film, uh, are the grandchildren of Harleen. Uh, It's very quick. You blink if you miss it, or you blink and you'll miss it, and it's just this old lady, you know, coming to bail out the DDs, and she's just talking about, like, you're a break, you're old grandmother's heart. And one of the DDs goes, oh, shut up, Nana Harley. And you get that that's Harleen. That's how, that's the whole connection. So um, there's that. So we get that. um, And then we get the big scene, the big uh, explanation where Batman is led into the theater. And Joker has put on a little movie for him on the projector screen where it shows in black and white Joker torturing Tim. And it is, you know, as a kid, I found it really hard to watch. And even now, as an adult, it's still like, oh, like, yikes. They don't go as dark as I think they probably could have with this. We're not talking, like, the Jason Todd torture sequences from Arkham Knight. But it's still pretty disturbing. And Joker, you know, gives this great monologue where he's talking about how, you know, Tim put up a really good fight. But eventually, um, he started to share secrets, you know, trying to either A, get out of being tortured, or B, slowly being converted and manipulated, where he told Joker the truth about Batman's secret identity. And it's a great, great line from Mark Hamill, where he's he says something along the lines of, he, you know, he began to share such secrets with me, secrets that only I know, Bruce. And it's that moment where it's like, oh no... Oh, God, this is it. This is what happened. And so um, we see that Joker now knows his identity. Um, He does this great thing where he just strips him down, like verbally. Like, I, you know, I'm disappointed by who you are because, you know, all these times that I thought you were so cool, you're really just this this sad little boy crying out for mommy and daddy. And then he says the line, which we had in the intro for this segment, where he says, it'd be funny if it weren't so pathetic. 
Oh, what the heck, I'll laugh anyway. And that's so quintessential Joker. This film really gets it. Like, a lot of people point to, like, the killing joke for true blue Joker characterization. And I have made it very clear on this podcast that I have problems with that story. This one, for me, is quintessential. You want to know who the Joker is, you watch this. And he just starts laughing. Batman goes after him. He literally goes after him. And he, at some points, you can see him killing him. There's a moment right after uh, Joker reveals Tim where Batman takes uh, the Batarang that he was using to cut himself free and just throws it right at Joker's head. And if Joker doesn't duck, he gets that right between the eyes. Like, Batman is done. And so Batman goes to... He even says at one point, he's like, I'm going to break you in two. And Joker has this great line. He's like, if you, you know, if you had the, basically, if you had the balls for that, you would have done that years ago. But he, you know, does the stab into Batman's leg. He falls and then he picks him up and hands the, his trademark, you know, bang flag gun over to Tim. And he says, you know, deliver the punchline. And he's basically telling Tim to kill Batman, and Tim is still struggling. He's trying to fight his new programming, and in the end, he shoots Joker instead. And Joker's final line is pitch perfect. Just so perfect. Joker just got shot. He's got blood dribbling out of his mouth, and he's holding the flag to his chest, and he just goes, that's not funny. That's not and he falls dead. And it's, oh my god, it's so good. But the real tragedy in this is after he dies, where Tim, you know, his creepy laugh is still going, but then it slowly devolves into him just sobbing. Tears flowing down his face, knowing that he has been forever broken by this man or this creature whatever you want to call what the Joker is. And it's heartbreaking. It really, really is. This, I think, goes right up there with, you know, the comic uh, Death of Jason Todd, a Death of the Family. Um, any of the most horrible things that Joker has ever done, this is right up there. This is top five for sure. Might even be an argument for it being the best. So... It's incredible. And also getting to look back at these characters, you know, in their quote-unquote prime was really cool. I'm a huge nostalgia fan, so I enjoyed that. But what really sells this scene and what really sells the film itself is, of course, Mark Hamill's Joker. He is front and center in this film. He's in the title. He's on the box art. He is the main antagonist he is the mountain to climb he is the star of the show here where he is every bit as psychotic and charming and captivating as he has always been and i love it he you see how much of an impact that he had on the um on really the entire way that we look at the Joker when it comes to his relationship with Batman. Everybody, since the release of Batman the Animated Series, has tried to do what Mark Hamill did with the Joker. Whether we're talking animation, whether we're talking live action, every single person knows Mark Hamill's 
version of the character, and every single person knows that he's the best. He just is. He is. You can fight me. You can fight me on it. That's fine. You're going to lose. He is the quintessential Joker, and he is at peak performance here. Uh, the, the opening scene where he's with the Joker's gang, and he's, you know, his face is cast in shadow, and you see, like, the two dots and the smile, so you almost think for a second, oh, they're going to reuse the design from the new animated adventures of Batman, you know, the Mickey Mouse design, where he's just all white face, no lips, big smile, two dots for eyes. And you, you get that idea, but then you notice that his eyes aren't, you know, pitch black like they are in the... Uh, in the cartoon, they're blood red. And that is a terrifying look, having just these two red dots and this big smile cast in shadow. And when he steps out, you see this new design for him. He's, you know, got slicked back hair. He's in this black jumpsuit. And he's terrifying. He's still got it. That old man's still got it. And you see how he just like a lot of people kind of longs for a simpler time, longs for nostalgia. He talks about how much times have changed. He talks about de being disappointed with his gang. He talks about being underwhelmed by this new Batman. I t said it earlier, you know, ears are too long and I miss the cape, but whatever. And he just is so focused on Bruce being the target. He thinks that once Bruce is out of the way, it's taken care of. He's got nothing to worry about anymore. And at every single turn, he underestimates this new Batman to the point that it causes his downfall. But that's always been core to the Joker's character. That's always been, at his best, what brings him down in every single adventure that he's ever had is his hubris and his pride and the fact that he thinks he's better than everybody else in the room. And we get a lot of great Joker lines here. Um wanting to him saying something along the lines of you know joker's back in town and i'm ready to give this city a wedgie again like all of these quintessential like classic like ah that's the joker ah that's the joker uh even his you know reappearance at the uh wayne powers gala where he you know just pops up in this puff of smoke um his entrance where everyone you know bruce is given the speech but then the uh loudspeaker gets taken over it's just his laugh it is um it is both terrifying and incredibly entertaining and i love it uh, mark hamill does some of it some of his best work here especially in the flashback sequence as well as all of his taunting of terry in the final sequence as well which not as many people talk about not as many people talk about the end fight between joker and terry but i think it's incredible i think the way that Terry defeats Joker. I think the exchange that they have with uh, Joker using t using Tim's body, the reveal of Tim being the Joker against his will, uh, and that allowing him to have all the muscle memory of uh, Tim's Robin exploits and being able to go toe-to-toe -to -toe physically with Batman, which we've never really seen. Um, and of course, like his downfall where he... You know, use it. He gets frustrated. He gets flustered by this quippy, uh, insulting Batman, and gets too close. And Terry's able to sh use the joy buzzer to destroy the chip that Joker implanted into Tim. 
So he's fantastic. His legacy is felt in every single aspect of this film and really every single aspect of the original Batman Beyond show. And that's why I and a lot of people were longing and hoping that we were going to get some kind of follow-up to what happened to the Joker while watching the original cartoon. Uh, We also get to see really what happened to Tim. And this, I think, is one of the unsung heroes of the film, and that's the theme of trauma. Trauma is a touchy subject for a lot of people. And I think when it comes to comics, no single character has inflicted as much trauma on as many people as the Joker. And we really get to see the aspect of trauma in every single character. We get to see how it affected Tim. We get to see that after what happened, even after he was quote-unquote cured, he never was able to let go of that fear of the Joker. And of course, that had to be you know part of that chip embedding itself into his mind and the whispers and the voices in his head. Uh, but you see how much that's affected him. You see how much that's affected Barbara. And you see how much that's affected Bruce. Uh, Bruce, immediately upon seeing the Joker, is just... It's incredible. Like, what you can see on a cartoon character's face the amount of shock and dread and trauma that is translated in the look that he gives joker um is fascinating and you see how much trauma affected everyone involved that night you see that they won't even talk about him he did this horrible thing and they won't even talk about what happened no one knows really what happened to joker and they even say this in outside of Gordon, Barbara, and Bruce, as, as far as we know. We don't know if they told Dick if they were already you know, on the out and out with each other at that point, but as far as is explained in this film, the only people who really know what happened are Bruce, Tim, uh, Barbara, and uh, Jim Gordon. So they don't talk about it, and it's really uneasy when this happens. You see how much it affected Tim, even subconsciously, when Joker goes in and ransacks, you know, the Batcave after dosing Bruce with the Joker toxin, his trauma against, you know, not just the Joker's vindictive nature against um, Robin and against him for killing him, but Tim's own trauma wanting to forget that he was Robin, wanting to leave that life behind him forces him to tear up the Robin suit, which ultimately is the clue that Terry needs to put two and two together to get to the conclusion that Tim is the Joker, or at least is helping him out. So I think it's an incredible, incredible story when it comes to uh, talking about trauma, how it affects you, and then also the idea that you can get past it. It can get better. The ending scene where Bruce has finally moved past his trauma and past his bitterness and past all of this guilt that he's carried with him for decades since this happened, he's finally able to let it go and reconnect with the people who matter the most to him. The conversation that Tim and Barbara have, you know, Tim says, you have to take stock in the people in your life because you don't know how long they're going to be there. And Barbara even says, you know, not everyone is able to, um, 
not everyone is able to uh what's the word um emote that not express not everyone's able to express that even if they want to even if how that's how they feel and you know they're talking about bruce because of course they're talking about bruce he's the guy who bottles up every single emotion in him until he explodes and we you get this feeling in this final scene that you know god they made it through this harrowing thing tim is still affected but now he's finally free of the joker's influence you just wish that bruce and him could make up because after being fired and being you know cut off from the bat family tim and bruce had that huge falling out and they haven't spoken in years and then as terry's leaving bruce is there and terry even asks him like what are you doing here because no one expects him to be there and bruce says it's where i should be and he finally realizes that the only way that he is going to let go of this trauma, the only way that he is going to let go of this guilt is by taking refuge and taking comfort in the people who matter most to him and in repairing that bridge with Tim and, you know, to a lesser extent with Barbara as well. We get great uh, banter and character development between Barbara and Bruce during the course of the series. So I was really glad that we got that little moment at the end where Bruce, you know, opens up the door and he says, hello, Tim. And you can hear it. Kevin Conroy does, again, some of his best work in this film. Uh, and you can hear the pain and the guilt and the sorrow in him when he says hello to Tim. And Tim just looks at him and there's this pause and he just goes, hey, old man. And that's so, it brings you back. It brings you back to the new Batman adventures where Tim was just a beacon of light in that film. And he really made that cartoon for me. And that speaks to the aspect of Batman needing a Robin. And so them finally being able to repair that relationship again, Batman and Robin finally together one more time is just everything that I could ask for in a Batman film, everything that I could ask for in a Bruce Wayne and Tim Drake film, and everything that I could ask for in a Batman Beyond film. So that is it. That is Batman Beyond Return of the Joker. I love this film. It is incredible. If you haven't watched it, once again, go watch it. It's easily found um, I think even on YouTube somebody like broke it up into several different parts you can watch it there I would recommend watching it on the DC Universe streaming service and app uh, just because they have the updated uh, anniversary version where it's like HD and it's super like good quality and it's the uncut version as well so the best version so uh, let me know if you've watched this do you enjoy this? Do you like what they did with the Joker in this film? We've got lots and lots of Joker content for you this month. I am incredibly excited about it. And I really, really hope that with um, Batman Beyond entering its 20-year anniversary that we're going to get you know some kind of coverage. Because this is a very... I wouldn't say it's a well-known Batman story, but it is one of the greatest Joker stories ever told.
You know, I'm almost going to miss listening to that song every week. Almost. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the weekly review. This is the segment of our show where I review something weekly. And right now, we have made it. We've made it to the conclusion, the season finale of The Boys. This is the live-action adaptation of the comic of the same name on the Amazon Prime uh, streaming service. And this is episode 8. This is it. This is the uh, grand finale for season 1 of The Boys. It has been confirmed that we are getting a season 2. And after watching this episode, I would have been incredibly surprised if they didn't because there were so many uh, unanswered questions here, so many plot threads that there's no way it would be a heinous crime for them not to give us season two. But this is the review for episode number eight entitled You Found Me. And God, there's so much that happens in this episode. Like, I've been critical, I think, of a couple of the episodes that I felt weren't really pushing the story along. They were giving us a lot of character beats, which I like. I always enjoy character beats. But I really wanted to see them pick up the... uh, pick up the story, pick up the narrative. And I really wanted them to give us more answers. (laughs) Because we were dealing with a lot of questions throughout the show. And I just really wanted to get some answers. And this episode, while giving us a couple answers here and there, gave us way more questions. So um, I've got my notes here. We're going to talk about this. And um, the way that we start this off here, I have this in my notes specifically. It's a quote from Homelander in the be- in the opening sequence of this um, of this section, where Homelander says, "You are the real heroes." And I'll give you some context on that if you haven't watched the episode. Which if you haven't by now, come on! Like I'm super late to the party, but um, come on, you need to watch this. But the opening of this has Homelander assisting, I'm assuming, like Navy SEALs of some kind in a raid on a terrorist facility overseas. And Homelander just kind of like shows up and he like is about to walk in there and he stops himself and he's like, oh, fuck, that's right, I have to say this. And he turns around and he says, you guys are the real heroes. And you've heard him say this at least a couple times throughout the season. And every time he says it, it's just faker and faker. And I kind of love it. I kind of love how fake he is with his like outward persona of being like, I'm Homelander, but you know, you guys are the real heroes. You don't have any powers. And it's just, oh, it's perfection. Anthony Starr, so, 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 so good. Um, so he basically goes in, we see that the um, the military has officially welcomed soups into the uh, into the armed forces, and Stillwell got everything she wanted. She's now getting a promotion. Um, she is looking at getting a big raise and possibly taking over her boss's job. And her whole thing, like it, makes it out very. Um, early on in the episode that Stillwell probably facilitated uh, Nakib, 
who is uh, the captain in English, uh, getting his superpowers and basically creating the world's first superpower terrorist. But as we come to find out later in the episode during, you know, this, I guess this like banquet, this company party, um, it was Homelander. And I find that fascinating. Um, Homelander was the one who created Nakib, and he because it's really interesting because this entire time he's been talking about how he uh, doesn't feel valued, how he wants a bigger seat at the table, how he wants to help make decisions throughout this whole thing. And that's what's really pushed him to do a lot of the stuff that he's done. Um, making the whole, like going off script at um, the festival, like taking matters into his own hands with the pursuit of... Um, trying to find translucent all of that and you see that this entire time he's been using compound v and experimenting on people and that's just he's officially moved into supervillain territory if he wasn't already he's definitely there now and you just really get to see the core of how messed up their relationship is because as soon as Stillwell finds this out that Homelander was essentially the person who bailed her out and got her everything she could have ever wanted she just starts making out with him and then sleeps with him in her office and it's weird it's uncomfortable um I'll be candid with you I was watching this episode at the uh laundromat near my near my uh my place and our uh our in-unit um our building's uh, washer and dryer was out. It was getting replaced. So I had to take and do my laundry at the uh, at the local laundromat. And I'm watching this episode, right, at the laundromat, headphones in. And I'm watching this scene where they're having the most awkward and weird and uncomfortable sex scene that I've seen in a very long time. And I start, like, looking around to see if other people are, are like, peeking on what i'm watching and i'm like this is super uncomfortable to watch <laughs> but um it really f just continued to push forward how messed up and oedipus like their relationship is and it's it's fascinating it really is uh we do see here that because of um vats essentially uh checkmating the boys they've gotten um essentially amnesty from the FBI and the FBI is basically curtailing all of their resources to please Vought now because now oh we have to make sure that these guys are taken care of because they're the only producers of um, our superheroes of our nation's superheroes and the only ones that are going to be able to combat these terrorists uh, or these superpowered terrorists and Unfortunately, that means the boys are burned. They're on the run. They now have to go into hiding. And I just feel bad for all of them. I really do. It sucks. Um, especially for guys like M.M. who really had a nice domestic, like normal life before the events of this season. Um, it just, you really feel for them. The FBI does, of course, tell them, hey, all your family's safe. Don't worry about them. But it still sucks. Meanwhile... Um, Annie goes on a journey of self-discovery. Annie, get your truth, as I have it in my notes here. And um, she goes back to her mom after Huey told her all about Compound V and all this stuff. And 
she goes to her mom's house and she confronts her about compound v and it's here that we find out that her mom uh, was contacted by vaught to basically inject her with compound v when she was very very young and that was the reason that her father walked out on them was because he couldn't deal with the lies and he couldn't deal with lying to his daughter about her being you know chosen by god to have these powers and um annie's so good in this episode annie is just oh man she's an she's an mvp for this episode for sure she's been great throughout the entire show but this episode in particular was really really strong um she decides after finding out the truth officially from her mom to go to church which i think is fascinating after all of her stuff at believe expo and that's where huey finds her before we catch up with them uh we gotta talk about huey and butcher because this episode really was a huey versus butcher episode both in them actually in conflict as well as showing how different they are in their ideologies um after the uh whoever like weird hit squad swat team whatever uh breaks into the hotel room or the motel room that they've been that the boys have been staying in and captures mm frenchie and the female or kimiko um butcher and huey are like okay we have to figure this out now um we have to figure out what we're going to do next what our next step is and huey's like we have to go save them they're our team they're our friends and butcher's like no we gotta complete the mission that's what they'd want and they finally have this blow up that we have been building and building and building and building and building and building and building all the way up until this point and it's so good because they finally like Huey finally gets exactly who Butcher is. Butcher is willing to burn his entire world down just to get to Homelander. And we see this literally uh, later on in the episode. But um, it's after it's after the conversation that they have with Mallory earlier in the episode when Hugh and Butcher split off they go to Mallory and we finally get to see who Mallory is. We get to see uh, that she is alive. I kind of assume that she was dead but we find that she not only she is alive, she is uh, in hiding. She's like in exile in this deep in this like forest area, and you see that after uh, Lamplighter killed her grandkids, which we uh, were told earlier in the season, she went into hiding because she couldn't deal with it anymore. She basically abandoned Billy and the rest of the boys afterwards, disbanding them, and you see that she's been here ever since, and. Butcher gets some really good scenes here. Some really, really good scenes just in, I mean, in the episode in general. But here, he really, he is on his last legs. He's desperate. And so he goes to Mallory, even though he promised her he wouldn't find her again. And, oh, it's it's so interesting. I would love a prequel, like, episode or season where it's Mallory getting all the original boys together to go after Lamplighter and the other members of the Seven, but it's so good. It's so good, the conversation they have here. Uh, there's a moment where Mallory's like, why would I ever help you? And Billy says, because you owe me. Because you owe me for 
taking me and sharpening me into this weapon and pointing me at Homelander and then leaving me to rot. And I loved this. I have really been wanting to get more um, pathos from Butcher. Uh, he's been great as a character. He is very imposing. Um, he's a fun character to watch, but I've been really wanting to get more into his head and see where he's at, what he's thinking. And I really loved the spotlights that we got from him here. But anyway, um, Mallory basically tells him to go after Stillwell, and they leave. But it's after this, they have this con this confrontation, Billy and uh Huey do, where they finally make the decision between being a hero or a villain. And I really like this distinction. It's not overtly stated, but you can tell in the, um, in the framing of their adventures throughout the rest of this uh, episode. Huey goes off to rescue the boys. And I love when he, uh, when he gets captured, because he, he knows that these guys are going to jump out of the van at him. So he's just like prepping himself. He's mentally like, okay, 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 I can do this, I can do this. And he just walks just as casually as possible until all these guys jump out of the van and tackle him. He's like, oh, what the fuck? And it's so good. But you see him um, before he goes to get captured, he goes and finds Annie in the church. And they have the first conversation that they've had since Billy shot her and took Huey away. And they have this really wonderful scene. The, the chemistry between the two of them is off the charts, first of all. But um, you really get to see this moment where um, Annie wants to believe. You can tell Annie wants to believe Huey's a good person, that he didn't... Um, purposefully use her but she's hurting she's been betrayed by literally everyone that she trusted and loved and they kind of part ways with this real uneasiness between them you know she tells him why would I ever help you and he says because you're a hero that's what you're supposed to do and then they leave but Huey goes and he helps um Frenchie and M.M. escape. They go to rescue uh, Kimiko, and they're getting pinned down. Um, <laughs> Huey's amazing in this because he's just like, uh, Frenchie gives him a gun and tells him to cover uh, M.M., and Huey's just like firing this gun at the guards, and he's just like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, the entire time he's shooting, and it's wonderful. But, um, so... They eventually rescue Kimiko, but they're pinned down once again by all of the guards until Annie shows up. And it's a really cool sequence, just watching her kick ass, just using her powers, taking out all these armed guards. And then, then we get the confrontation that I've been waiting for. I have been waiting this entire season to see a soup go up against a soup. And we finally get it here. A-Train, who has been uh, slowly recovering throughout this episode due to uh, Kimiko breaking his leg uh, in a previous episode, has been just through the ringer. Once again, you really start to feel for A-Train in the last few episodes, and here especially too, because he is... he goes through this weird period of feeling like he's nothing without being a superhero. Uh, there's this moment where he's shopping in a uh, in a store, and you can tell that systemic racism is still alive and well because this um, overweight white rent-a-cop is just following him around because he's black and he, because he's suspicious. And 
the second, literally the second, that the guy actually finds out that this guy's A-Train, he's just like, oh, no, no, we're cool, we're cool, we're cool. And A-Train is just incensed by this. He's like, oh, so just because I'm A-Train, we're cool. Not because I was minding my own business or anything. And it's a wonderful scene, really, really well done. But this gives A-Train the impetus to be like, I have to be a hero because I'm nothing. I'm treated like garbage if I'm not in the tights. And so he starts taking Compound V again. His brother abandons him. And he shows up here to fight um the boys that are trying to escape as well as annie and you can tell he's hopped up on compound v and it's affecting him bad and then we get to see the throwdown between um a train and annie and we see that at least on compound v i don't know um whether or not he's this fast without the compound v but we see that within while using the compound v he's faster than light he's faster than annie is able to keep up with him and i love the framing the choreography for this scene it's very simple very sub subdued annie doesn't even really get a shot in but i really loved how they filmed this scene um, A-Train overpowers Annie, is about to kill Huey when he has a heart attack because the Compound V has just made its way into his heart. And he's having a heart attack, he's dying, um, and Huey has the opportunity to leave, to escape. And Annie tells him, if you help him survive, he is never going to stop coming after you. And Huey says, I know, but he helps him anyway. And he's trying to uh, resuscitate him. He's trying to um, just save him in any way he can. And Annie, you know, calls in a distress signal for him and tells Huey that he has to go so that, like, they can survive. So Huey escapes. Annie's left there. Um, we don't know exactly what's going to happen to Annie after this. Uh, we do know that A-Train knows that she's a traitor, but only A-Train knows that she's a traitor for sure. Um, so we don't know if this is going to put him in a coma, how long she's going to be able to hold up the facade that she's still on the team. Um, I'm sure we'll see all of that in uh, Season 2. But really, really great stuff. Really fascinating. And to uh, juxtapose Huey's very heroic... Um, arc for this episode we see just how dark uh billy is willing to go in his journey in the episode paralleling uh huey's hero's journey with his own villainous journey and so he goes to stillwell's house stillwell gets back from her party or whatever um and finds billy's there and he's um drugged the babysitter the baby's upstairs and he is going to use stillwell as bait for homelander and he rigs her up with like a suicide vest um which will take out the entire house including the baby once it's detonated and he just waits for homelander and this episode has been great to kind of get us all on the same page of where the entire seven is right now or i guess technically the five now that annie's kind of um or I guess now the four, technically, since Annie's defected and the Deep is still um, essentially uh, suspended for now. So Maeve has finally gotten to the point where she is, she kind of gives Annie a, a pep talk 
after her conversation with Huey, but before she goes and saves him. Really, Maeve is the one that gets her to see the light, telling her that, you know, she used to be just like her, but the world beat her down, and she wants Annie to not be that person. She wants Annie to do what's right and not become her. And it completes the journey that she's been on, you know, becoming essentially this older sister figure for her, which I really, really liked. Um... We also got to see the Deep at his lowest. Uh, I guess he assumed that he was going to get called back up after a certain amount of time, and it's revealed to him that he's not, that he is staying in Kandusky, and that, um, or Sandusky, and um, you see him really at his lowest. He shaves his head, he shaves his entire body, like he is just fascinating and i'm really interested to see what they do with him especially after everything that's happened to him this season what he's going to do next season feeling slighted by the by the seven and vaught and exactly how that's going to play into what he does uh following all this and then of course we talked about a train already he's just fascinating i went from completely despising this character to really feeling for this character um the moment that he finally takes um, some form of responsibility for killing Popclaw is just heart-wrenching because he goes up to Huey at, after he's defeated uh, uh, Starlight and he's like, you killed the only person I ever loved and Huey says, I didn't kill her and finally it almost dawns on him he's like, no, you didn't, I did and there's this moment where you're like oh, he's gonna come back, he's gonna you know, he's going to see the error of his ways. But then he goes right back to Huey. He's like, but it's your fault. And he goes to kill him before he has his heart attack. Uh, I'm really excited to see what they do with him next season. Uh, we've already seen that him being injured f- uh, brought the other guy that he raced earlier in the episode, kind of or earlier in the season, up to this prominence of now being the fastest man alive. So I'm really interested to see what they do with him next season, especially the sports aspect, which I remember i said i loved out of that episode so we'll just have to see from there uh for the rest of the members let's count this off um translucent's dead we talked about mave she is changed for sure uh the deep is still excommunicado and uh, a train is now uh, recovering from a heart attack annie has officially uh is now officially a double agent black noir Black Noir. Black Noir is just playing a piano, man. I hope we get more with him next season. Because <laughs> um, he's really interesting, especially because we haven't heard him speak. We don't really know anything about him, and I would love to learn more about him next season. And then, of course, Homelander, who shows up at Stillwell's place. And he is um, totally in control. But what I love about the framing of this is this is classic superheroics. This is classic comic book storytelling where the villain captures the hero's love interest and uses her as bait to get him to uh, fall right into a trap of some sort. But here we see that turned on its head. Um, We've completed almost the villain journey for Billy who has been walking a really fine line up until this point. But the moment that uh, Homelander shows up, Billy's in full villain mode. Like, it's fascinating seeing him, you know, covered in shadow. You know, he's got the detonator in his hand. Stillwell's rigged up with a bomb vest. And Homelander walks in 
cool as a cucumber, but with Stillwell's baby. And he's holding the baby, and he's like, shh, everything's going to be okay. And he sets the baby down in the crib, and he says the thing that I think a lot of us have been thinking this whole time. Um, he tells Billy, he's like, what's your proof? Because I know with everything that you've done, the people you've killed, you know, all of this has has to be based on rock-solid proof. So how do you know? How do you know that I killed your wife? Has to be some rock-solid proof. So what is it? And you realize... You know, the thing that we've all been kind of dreading is that Billy has no proof. He went off of a hunch after being essentially uh, manipulated into joining the boys by Mallory. And it's messed with him ever since. And he hasn't been able to live a normal life since then. And he's just been focused on this um, vendetta against Homelander without really having any rock-solid proof. And it's so incredibly sad because you you really feel for Billy. He's just been fighting this fight for nothing, essentially. And so we find out that Homelander went back to the um, scientist after having a conversation with Stillwell at the party in this episode where some of the details don't line up. Like, the uh, scientist says that the baby clawed its way out of... Um, out of uh, Becca's body killing them both, where Stillwell gives a different story, mostly the same story, but very minor differences. And so Homelander, I guess, went back to the scientist and probably killed him, but tortured him long enough just to get the facts. And so he forces Stillwell to admit that she's afraid of him, and then he just roasts her. I have never seen this as effectively done as I've seen this here. Um, I remember back playing the very first Injustice game in the uh, the story mode, spoilers for a game that's been out for a long time. Um, Superman does this to Shazam after he questions him. And it was brutal then, it's even more brutal here because he just melts her entire head. It is gruesome. And then he turns back to Billy and he's just like, okay, so that was your that was your one ace in the hole. What are you gonna do? And Billy's like, eh. and he detonates the vest anyway. And immediately, you know, screen flashes white and then he wakes up in a yard. And for a second I thought, okay. He killed himself. He's in, you know, some form of heaven or limbo or whatever. He's going to find his wife, um, and he's going to find some form of happiness uh, being dead. And he he definitely does one of those things. He definitely finds his wife. Um, we find out that Homelander flew them both out of there, that he saved him. Probably not the baby, though, um, which is sad, and it shows that Billy's really only uh, casualty from this attempt to kill Homelander was a baby. And that's... Ooh, I, I hope they touch on that next season, because that is... Um, so anyway, they find themselves in the yard of this uh, this blonde kid, and his mom steps out, and it's Becca. And you find out she's been alive the whole time. And not only that, the baby was delivered and this baby is now this blonde kid and homelander comes up to them and he's just like you know who i am and the kid's like yeah you're homelander and he's like yeah 
I'm also your dad. And Becca sees Billy, Billy sees Becca, and it's just like, what the hell is happening? And that's where the season ends. That's where the episode ends. And after that, I was like, are you kidding me? Uh, It was just so, so good. Such a great cliffhanger. I really, really liked it. Um, I think I haven't been that upset about a cliffhanger since probably Umbrella Academy. And this was really well done. I'm really excited about a season two. I'm really excited about getting some real answers, finding out about everything that was left dangling after this season. Overall, the season has been fantastic. If I have to give the entire season some arbitrary rating out of five, I would probably give it like a three and a half. Three and a half out of five. Um, Really enjoyed all the character beats. Some characters were better than others. Some episodes were better than others. But overall, I think this is a really strong season for a really great show. Um, Some of my MVPs, Huey, Billy Butcher, Homelander, and Annie, and then I'd probably also throw up A-Train there. Those five were my core. Those five were the folks that I followed all the way through this season, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what they do with them next season. And that does it for the boys in the weekly review. Um, I would love to know what you thought about the boys. Feel free to let me know on uh, Instagram or Twitter at GeekSplainedPod. That's at GeekSplainedPod. Or through email, because I'm an old man, I still read emails, to gmail, to GeekSplained at gmail.com. Uh, but because we have wrapped up, we got to look to our next focus on the weekly review, which is going to be Arrow Season 8. This is the final season for Arrow, the one that started it all when it comes to the CWTV universe. I think... A lot of people, myself included, had no idea that Arrow was eventually that first season of Arrow was eventually going to lead to Crisis on Infinite Earths. But here we are. I'm really excited to get into it next week. It is going to be so good. And what's that? Uh huh. Oh, it's not next. Oh. Oh, it's the week app. Okay. Huh. Okay, so, um, <laughs> uh, change of plans. I'm looking at the, uh, the release date for Arrow Season 8, and it's not next week, which would be our episode on the 9th. It is, in fact, October 15th, which would be the very next week. So there is going to be a bit of a lull period between this and the first episode of Season 8 of Arrow. So, to counteract that, I will be doing a double review on the premieres of The Flash and Supergirl. So look forward to that next week to kick us off on the march to crisis on infinite earths really looking forward to it really excited about this um it's all coming together with all the news that we got about um the returning faces with the reveal of brandon routh as superman i'm so excited about that i can't tell you how excited i am about that it's so good um this is really shaping up to be something special so next week in the weekly review i'll be giving you a double uh 
a double feature, if you will, on the premieres of Supergirl Season 5 and Flash Season 6. And then the following week, we will start with our regular Arrow coverage every week in the weekly review. Let me know what you think about all the stuff leading into Crisis. Are you going to be watching all of this stuff? Are you going to be watching Crisis itself? I would love to have that conversation with you. But for now, we're going to jump on over to this week's Comics Countdown. Welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I talk about the comics that I think you should be picking up this week, whether it's at your local comic book shop, on Comixology, or however you get your comics. These are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. We'll be talking about each book's title, the creative team behind each book, as well as a brief synopsis of each book as well. And of course, every synopsis will be accompanied by my synopsis voices. If you have a synopsis voice you would like me to try out, feel free to request them on Instagram or Twitter at Pod, or through email to geeksplained at gmail.com. But before we get into the picks for this week, we got to take a look back at last week in the Geeksplained Pick of the Week of last week. And there were some contenders here. There were some contenders. We had uh, Powers of Ten, number five, which was, I think, a pretty strong book. Gave us a lot of stuff to think about, like a lot. Um... We also had Batman Superman number two, which gave us a lot of stuff to think about for the oncoming year of the villain, for the Batman who laughs. Lots of great, great art by David Marquez. But the pick of the week of last week has to be Curse of the White Knight number three. This book was so good. Uh, written, illustrated, the whole shebang by Sean Gordon Murphy. This book has been so strong. I wasn't sure about if it was going to live up to uh, the first, um, the initial White Knight story after issue one, but issue two and issue three have knocked it out of the park, and I've really, really enjoyed it. Um, they have just been picking off Batman supporting characters throughout this entire both the last book and this book and I'm here for it I'm really excited um slight spoilers for this book some really good um uh, character beats here we find that uh, Bruce Wayne has officially been marked as Batman for a select group of people mostly just the GCPD that he's been working with Bullock is hilarious. Bullock's really great in this book. He's been fantastic. I've been really hoping that he was going to come back to prominence after loving him in the animated series, and he's just so fun in this issue. Um, we also get to see how Joker reacts to him being a father, and it is as really um, uncomfortable as you would expect it to be. So, really, really good stuff. And then finally, Big spoilers here. Um, at the very end of the issue, it seems to be that they kill off Commissioner Gordon. Now, in White Knight, they killed off Alfred. And in this one, if they're killing out Gordon here, oh my god. I don't know how Bruce Wayne and Batman is going to get through this. So overall, love the book. It's my pick of the week of last week. It is a fantastic story, and I urge you... If you, if you picked up the first issue and you weren't really feeling it like I was, and pick up issue two and issue three. They will do wonders for you. They are super, super good. But that's last week. Let's talk about this week. We've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight books for you this week. And we are kicking it off with Deceased. 
DC, this book is, let me check right here. This is Deceased, number five of six. This is the penultimate issue, uh, written by Tom Taylor with art by Trevor Harrison. Uh, this book's been really good. It is basically exactly what you thought it was going to be, Marvel Zombies, but with DC. Um, and I've been enjoying it. It's, you know, out of continuity. Uh, it's basically you're watching everybody get just picked off one by one, and it's been really good so far. So let's jump into the synopsis here. The world is dying at the hands of the infected, and the very survival of humanity is at stake. Facing extinction, Superman and the heroes will make a decision that will fundamentally alter Earth's present and future. So with that synopsis, I'm assuming there's going to be some time travel shenanigans involved. Um, as far as I remember, Barry and Wally are still alive. They're not infected yet, so we will see. Um, but yeah, looking forward to this book for sure. Next up, we have Young Justice number 9, written by Brian Michael Bendis with art by John Timms. Um, Okay, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna talk for a second. Um, for months, they've been talking about Tim Drake uh, getting a new costume, getting a new identity, and it's gonna be his defining one going forward. We got a reveal for what his costume is gonna be. Don't like it. It's this brown mess. Not really enjoying it at all. And then last issue, they revealed that his new moniker is going to be Drake, just Drake. Um, and that he's taking it from his his uh, Earth three evil counterpart who is going by the same code name, because it's like a duck, a really vicious duck. I think um, I'm no specialist in uh, birds, but um, I just I don't like it. I think it's dumb. I think there's a ton of different. Um, monikers he could have gone with and i'm just not on board with it i hope it changes i hope the costume changes but time will tell so let's jump into the synopsis here oh man lost in the multiverse with no way home the teens of young justice find themselves trapped on a dark world that was once ruled by the evil justice league known as the crime syndicate but is now run by their younger more feral more anarchic counterparts the young f they are not nice all this and finally the truth behind teen lantern so yeah, I'm excited to get some answers on that. Um, I will say I've been really enjoying the book. I know I was kind of negative like going into this uh, this part of the segment, but I've been really enjoying Unjustice. I have been really enjoying everything about the book, so definitely pick this up for sure. Next up, we have Old Man Quill, number 10 of 12. We are heading into the home stretch here. Um, this is... Uh, we're almost done. We've got two more issues after this, and this issue promises to be really interesting. So, of course, written by Ethan Sachs, uh, art by John and Tyler Christopher. Let's jump into the synopsis here. Out of time. Peter Quill has failed. The ultimate nullifier is no longer in the Baxter building, and without it, there's no hope of stopping Galactus. If only he could go back in time and steal it from Re... Richards. Wait, why can't he? Because if Quill goes into the time stream, all of space-time is at risk. But when has a long shot stopped Star-Lord? 
So really good stuff. Um, looks like we're going to have some time travel hijinks here. Looking forward to it. Been really enjoying the book. Next up, we have Justice League, number 33, written by Scott Snyder and James Tynan IV, with art by Bruno Redondo and Francis Manipal. Um, book's been super good so far, and it has art our friends the justice society in it so i've been really enjoying it let's go ahead and jump into the synopsis here the justice doom war part four apex lex is in ascendance and he's taking out the remaining members of the justice league in the present just as his legion of doom is beating down the time traveling heroes in both the past and the future Batman, Superman, and the rest of our heroes may have just figured out how Commandi's timeline works when terrible hypertime quakes rattle their existence, threatening to strand them far from their time. Meanwhile, the Flash, Green Lantern, and the Justice Society take another leap through time, heading for Ancient Atlantis... So yeah, I'm excited. We're getting more JSA in this book. Uh, book's been really good just overall, and I would definitely recommend picking this up. Next up, we have Tom King, John Romita Jr., and Klaus Janssen on Batman number 80. Uh, we're in the we're in the home stretch here too, folks. We've got only five more issues after this. Uh, we are heading into the final act of not only uh, City of Bane, but also of Tom King's run on the mainline Batman book, with, of course, James Tynan IV uh, picking up the book in uh, issue 86 in January. So this book has been fantastic so far. I've loved every second of it. Okay, not every second of it. Nightmares was blah. But the book has been really, really good following that. And um, I'm excited. I I enjoy John Romita Jr. drawing Batman. Uh, he doesn't do it very often, but when he does, it's been really, really good. So let's jump into the synopsis here. The bad guys thought they had it made with Bane in control. But with Batman back in Gotham, they'll be reminded what justice feels like and how it hurts when it hits you in the face. With Catwoman at his side, the Cape Crusader is looking to take down Bane's army and reclaim his city. But what happens when old allies like Gotham Girl also stand in his way? The legendary art team of John Romita Jr. and Klaus Janssen join Batman for two action-packed issues that will rock Gotham City to its foundation. So yeah, um, what more can I say? <laughs> That's a great synopsis. really gets you in the mood to see Batman kick some ass. So I'm really looking forward to this book very, very much. Uh, next up, we have Marvel Comics 1001, written by Al Ewing, with art by both Amanda Connor and Rod Rice. Race? Reese? I mispronounced your name, and I apologize. Um, this is the second part, uh, with the first part being in Marvel Comics 1000. This is wrapping that up and getting us hopefully ready for all that Marvel has in store for us uh, going for the rest of this year as well as into uh, 2020. Um, it looks like this is going to be focusing a lot on the Eternity Mask as well. So if you didn't like that aspect of Marvel Comics 1000, you're not going to like it in this one either. But I'm excited. I really like Amanda Connor and Rod Race. Um, I love their art and it's really, really good stuff. So uh, let's go ahead and jump into the synopsis here. The biggest story in Marvel history continues. Who is the mysterious new character from Marvel's past? 
It was a story too large for any one issue, with too many classic Marvel creators who wanted to be a part of the fun. And so, the party continues on with this additional celebratory issue, featuring additional secrets and revelations about the Eternity Mask and the person who now wears it. So it seems like the Eternity Mask is going to be a big part of Marvel, at least going into uh, 2020, so I'm really looking forward to this. should be good stuff. Next up, big book, one of my just have to pick up this week's is a uh, legion of superheroes millennium number two of two written by brian michael bendis with art by nicholas scott and ryan sook um this is our last stop before the legion officially touches back down in comic book stores everywhere really looking forward to this the first issue i was surprised at how much i really enjoyed it and also surprised about the main character who ended up being thorn a very like i want to say like c or even d list level uh dc character but really looking forward to this book let's jump into the synopsis here Get on board for a journey through the future like no other. A gallery of all-star artists join our mysterious guide as they continue their 1,000-year journey th toward the 31st century, inspiring Booster Gold to time travel, debating fighting tactics with OMAC, and making their way to the front door of the Legion of Superheroes. The DC event of the future is here now. So again... Legion of Superheroes, can't ask for more, really looking forward to this. And finally, what I think is the big book of the week is House of X number 6 of 6, written by Jonathan Hickman with art by Pepe Larraz. This is it, it's this, and then Powers of 10 next week, and then we are, we have made it to the dawn of X. I have loved Every single issue of House of X has been so, so good. Uh, Powers of Ten has been the weaker book between the two, just because it's focused a lot on the um, year 1000 stuff, which I'm just, I'll admit, I'm not interested in at all. But I've been really enjoying the present day stuff, as well as some of the looks to the past, and I'm really looking forward to the answers and the revelations that come out of this book. So let's jump into the synopsis here. The Inevitable Future the revolutionary tale of mutant kind's rise comes to a conclusion that will lay the groundwork of the X-Men's stories for years to come. Superstar writer Jonathan Hickman and Marvel Young Gun artist Pepe Larraz wrap the series that changes everything. So we're expecting some big stuff out of this book. This is um, just gonna be so huge i'm really excited for dawn of x really excited for everything that hickman's doing when it comes to the x-men universe and i cannot wait to pick this book up so to recap we have deceased number five of six young justice number nine justice league number 33 old man quill number 10 of 12 batman number 80 marvel comics number 1001 legion of superheroes millennium number two of two and house of x number six of six 
If I missed any books, feel free to let me know. I love discovering new books each week. I am really, really, uh, I just, I've been loving the conversations that I've been having with people recently about books that I haven't been reading that I should pick up. And I, uh, I just want to keep them coming. So definitely send me your recommendations for a book that you're reading right now that I might not be, and I will add it to the list. So that is going to do it for this week's Comics Countdown. Look forward to more stuff going into next week. Not only are we going to be getting House of X number six of six this week, but we're getting Powers of Tex, Powers of Tex, Powers of X number six of six as well next week. I cannot wait. I'm so excited for Jonathan Hickman's X-Men and everything that has to do with the dawn of X. And that is going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you very much for listening all the way through. It really does help us out. And uh, if you liked what you heard, if this is your first time with us on the podcast, feel free to subscribe as well as give us a rating on iTunes. really does help us out. Giving us a five-star review will also have us read your review on the air would love that uh just it really helps us out um i appreciate everyone who has taken the time to give us ratings and reviews and it really helps us to get out into the uh bigger podcast uh realm and into the hands of listeners just like you so that is going to do it for uh everything that we've got for today um looking at our geek explain mailbag for the week and we do not have anything for the geek explain mailbag this week so send in your questions whether they're for me whether they're uh about a question you have about comics about me personally feel free to ask anything you would like and i will answer them in next week's geek explain mailbag segment uh feel free to send any questions to at geeksplained pod that's at geeksplained pod on instagram or twitter or through email because i'm an old man i still read emails to geeksplained at gmail.com so this as i said before is the opening salvo the first chapter of joketober which is our full month on the clown prince of crime himself next week we will be doing a full-on spoiler review for joker starring joaquin phoenix and i i'm excited i'm really excited i will uh try to see it as quickly as possible i really want to get as much time as i can to get my thoughts on it because apparently this is a very uh, it's a very well-made film, but it's very divisive among a lot of different groups of people. So I'm excited to see what they have in store for it. I'm really looking forward to it. Let me know if you are looking forward to Joker. Let me know if you have any feelings about anything we talked about today, whether that's the comics we talked about. Uh, let me know if you enjoyed The Boys and if you're excited for season two. And if you're excited for the Arrowverse shows to start premiering again starting next week, as well as our main story, which was Return of the Joker. Uh, let me know what you thought of the film. Let me know if you've watched it, if you haven't watched it, where you think it ranks among the greater pantheon of Joker stories. I would love to have that conversation with you been having a really good conversation lately with uh somebody about my rankings for the batman episodes the batman the animated series episodes if you haven't listened to that episode feel free to do that jump back on there it's one of my favorites it's celebrating uh 
just so many incredible episodes out of a pretty core piece of my childhood. So it was, I think, episode 74 where we ranked my top 10 episodes of Batman the Animated Series. Go ahead and check that out. Joker features prominently in many of those episodes. And um, let me know what your favorite Joker story is. Let me know if you're excited for all of the Joker content that we've got for you. I'm really excited. I have all of the stuff lined up for the month, and I cannot wait to drop it into the feed for you all to listen to. So stay tuned next week for that Joker spoiler-filled review. Same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for Geeksplain, this is Eric Azana. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next time.